Blog Talk Radio. Hi, welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist. And I'm Kate Hensler, developmental interventionist. How are you today, Laura? I'm doing very well. How are you? I, too, am doing well. We have a big That's day great. today. We do. We have a special guest, and she's already on. So I think we'll just forego our normal little niceties that we do at the beginning of the show and jump right in. We are so excited to have speech-language pathologist Patty Hamaguchi here with us today. Hi, Patty. Hi. Hi, Laura. Hi, Kate. Hi, Patty. We're so glad you're here with us, and let me, for the benefit of our listeners who don't know who you are, let me just give a little introduction, and then we can just jump right in, and anything that I miss, Patty, that you think would be helpful for any of the parents or therapists listening to know about you before we begin, feel free to uh, interrupt me if you want, or just <laughs> jump in and say what you want after I after I do your bio, but Patty's been a speech pathologist for 31 years. She's the director and founder of her own uh, therapy practice in Cupertino, California, and she's also the author of several books. One is a fantastic book that I've read and I love, and I recommend it all the time to parents, and it's on my recommended reading list when I do my conferences throughout the United States for therapists, and it's called Childhood Speech, Language, and Listening Problems, what every parent should know, and it's, again, a great, great, great reference to therapists are listening, and you don't have that in your library, you should stop right now and get on Amazon and order that. Uh, and she also has written two other books for professionals. One is called It's Time to Listen, and another one is called A Metacognitive Program for Treating Auditory Processing Disorders. And Patty also has a great um, newer venture is Tamaguchi Apps, and you're going to be talking to us about all those things today. Mm-hmm. And we're so, so, so excited that you agreed to do the show. And I met Patty for the first time at ASHA in Atlanta um, in November, but we've been online friends for several years, and so it's so exciting for me to get to have her on the show today. Welcome, Patty. Well, hi. Thank you, and welcome to you, too. And I have to, I just have to put a little plug in. For you, too, because we have been enjoying your DVDs that you've put together for, for speech development and listening. At our practice, we have um, close to 100 families that come to our practice for speech therapy, and we love using your DVDs to help parents have some more hands-on visual uh, ways to carry over some of the activities that we do at home. So we're thrilled uh, that you do what you do, so I'm really happy to be here. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much. And, you know, I think that that's already knew your name because I have read about auditory processing for years and years and recognized your name. And I kind of have a weird thing about remembering people's names anyway. And so when uh, your practice started buying my DVDs, I, I started thinking, I think I know that name. And so I Googled you and then thought, yes, that's how I remember her. And that's kind of how we started our back-and-forth email relationship. So, anyway, thank you for saying that about the DVDs, and I certainly appreciate any practice who uses that as part of their uh, parent education program. So, thank you so much for saying that. Well, you're so welcome. All right. Well, let's dive right in. 
one of your clinical specialties is auditory processing in children, and so many speech pathologists who primarily work with toddlers and young preschoolers often don't consider that as part of a child's profile or as part of what might be a formal diagnosis that a child that they're seeing, uh, what might be something that they would hear diagnostically about one of their little clients down the road. And so just for the sake of background information, would you give us kind of a working definition of auditory processing disorders and and one that parents could even wrap their brains around today as we're talking about that? Okay, so let me start by saying the, the term auditory processing disorder means different things to different people, and it depends on what profession they're in as to how they define it. So here we are speech pathologists, and we have a particular um, thought about what that means. So for speech pathologists and audiologists, we we perceive that as meaning there's a difficulty with the way the ears and the brain are processing incoming speech sound. So in, in in other words, the child doesn't hear speech the way that we might. So they, their actual processing of speech is the issue. But what a lot of people, let's say learning disabilities consultants or, or psychologists use that word in a, in a more generic way to mean that they, the child has difficulty processing language, period. And there is a little bit of a difference between those, those two definitions and it, it creates a little bit of confusion in the professional world, so it's no wonder that parents are a little bit confused. Out here in California, because we have on an IEP form, which is um, it's a form that, that they use in, in the schools to talk about a child's educational functioning and test-taking and all that kind of stuff, there was, a, there was a box that said auditory processing, and so the psychologist would check it off, yes or no, but so we were having a lot of difficulties between the different disciplines to try to sort out what do you mean by that auditory processing. So in California, we actually had a task force, um, which uh, I chaired, by the way, uh, and we wrote a, uh, a a document that the state of California now uses for all licensed speech pathologists and audiologists, and it describes it in, in much more detail. So basically what we determined in looking at the ASHA uh, document and there's about five other states at that point that had uh, also similar documents that describe how that term would be used by professionals. So we continue to use it to mean a disorder that occurs when the the ears and the and the brain don't process speech in a normal way, um, and so it's diagnosed specifically by an audiologist in a soundproof booth with headphones on. And they, they do it through tones and speech perception tasks uh, with background noise, left ear versus right ear. Whereas, let's say, a psychologist may still, you will find they still may use that term, but they are using it more loosely to, to mean the child has difficulty comprehending speech, comprehending any language that's auditorily provided, that's spoken to them. And so there's... Definitely a little that diagnosis means who would who would make that diagnosis and and how you treat it so we we still have a lot of ways to 
to have some consistency among professionals. Exactly. And I do think that therapists, even speech-language pathologists, may lean toward that more general um, definition and thinking about it as language processing since we are language specialists and think about it in, in that term. You know, and here in Kentucky, I don't know that psychologists, especially the ones that we would work with, Kate, with, with our little bitty friends, would even delve into using a term like that. Uh, and I've never heard one of our, our local colleagues that are psychologists use that particular diagnosis. Have you, Kate? No, I have not at all. And yeah, and, I think if they were using it, we would have heard it. Yeah, and a lot of it is because both of us specialize in early intervention. And typically, Patty, don't you think this is a diagnosis that is that is um, avoid is not the right word, but it's really not looked at as a possibility for a child until he or she is school age or maybe right under that, but, but older certainly than an early intervention population, right? Yeah, well, in California what we determined was that because most of the tests that are given really are not normed appropriately until age around around age 7, uh, it's generally not a good idea to try to make a diagnosis much younger than that because uh, there is a, a natural curve, a developmental curve for a lot of children in developing their auditory skills. And we can't always predict who is going to have a disorder and who is just maturing a little bit later. I would I would compare it to dyslexia. You know, when we have kids who are four and five who are, who are reversing letters, it's still part of a developmental process. It really becomes right. more of an issue when they reach a certain age and they should have a left-right brain dominance and the maturation should have occurred. So we're more comfortable. Certainly our document in California is very specific in that we think um, that age seven is a more appropriate time. That said, those kids right. who are seven, eight, or nine are still there at three, four, five. So we don't want to ignore right. them, and we don't want to just, you know, shut our eyes and say, "Well, I don't see it, I don't hear it. You're not seven yet." So right. the tr- the trick as a as a professional is to look at the risk factors in a preschool child, in a young child. Look at the risk factors, and and do as much. Um, risk reduction as you possibly can, and to start doing some what I I call, I tell parents it's prophylactic work. You know, I I can see, you know, the the zebra has stripes. You know, it it looks like a zebra. It talks like a zebra. I I may not have that diagnosis, and they may be too young for me to confirm it, but I'm not going to sit here for three years or four years and just do nothing and hope that they outgrow it. So, um, you know, yeah, it, it may not have a formal diagnosis, but we, we kind of have some ideas of things that we can do in the meantime to get this child on track and to help their auditory system develop the way we want it to. And I love that you did that segue without me having to do it because I was all prepared to use my example. That <laughs> <laughs> I always say in conferences is just, you know, that that diagnosis doesn't happen. You know, as a parent is on the seventh birthday, you know, the candles are being blown out. That diagnosis right. doesn't all of a sudden come down at that point. Those signs and symptoms have certainly been there. And so that's why I was so excited about you doing the show today because I think lots of us 
who work with a younger population, and those are all the kids that we see, um, can miss this really important piece of a child's uh, language difficulty. So you talked about risk factors. What are some things that we can look for when we're working with our youngest clients? What, what would tell us, gosh, this might be something you should consider? Okay, so when I have a child who comes into my office, let, let's say uh, I'll let you pick the age, three and a half or four, somewhere around there. But let's okay. do a three-year-old, and then we'll talk about how we can back it up even from there. But let's do three just to get started. Okay, so when I see a child who's three years old who um, who I think might be at risk, the kinds of things that I'm going to be picking up on are, are, are for example, is there a family history? Sometimes if there's older siblings or even if the parents, a lot of times when we discuss it, they will tell me that, gee, you know, I had difficulties like that when I was young, and I even still have difficulties like that. I, and in the parents, it might have manifested itself in, you know, a dyslexia kind of situation or ADD, you know, an attentive type or or um, uh, processing or sensory issues. You know, it takes on different faces, but um, they're all kind of related in the same ballpark, and sometimes the auditory processing disorder is associated with them. So one of the things that we do know about it is it rarely occurs in isolation. It generally has um, associated difficulties. They could be... Um, learning difficulties with spelling or reading. It can be articulation difficulties. It can be language acquisition. It can be any number of things. So when I see that there's a strong family history for for some of this, that's a little bit of a red flag. But in particular, the way the child is acquiring language and listening, their listening style is very, very key. So what I'm looking for is to see if the child is paying attention and looking, and and even if I water my, my content down pretty low, are they able to and willing to look at me and kind of follow what I'm saying? A lot of the kids that we see who tune out language and tune out speech and kind of go off um, aren't really making much sense out of it. It's not real meaningful to them. So there isn't right. much payoff for them to, to listen to me or to look at me. Um, and these are the kids who often need a lot of visual support. So if I have visual cues and pictures and objects and anything that's visual, if, they, if they're the kinds of kids who will attend to that but are not really listening per se, um, that, that's a, definitely a little bit of a red flag as well. We might see some difficulties with them in a more uh, bigger group environment, like if they're in a preschool and the teacher's giving directions or talking to the class, and the child's hearing's been checked and found to be within normal limits, uh, a lot of times they're sort of off on their own and really not paying attention. They don't alert to their name real well. Um, they're not listening. Uh, we also find sometimes there's a risk factor for kids who have frequent ear infections. Mm-hmm. And the research has been really kind of interesting in this regard because I, I follow it pretty carefully because it's, as I mentioned, I you know, we revise the document twice. Uh, and so, you know, we, we look at all the time what the research says, and it's been very contradictory. There's pieces of literature that suggest that having, you know, early frequent ear infections is a predictor or risk factor 
for future auditory processing disorders. And, and there's other research that says there's no difference. But I can tell you that my own experience has been that when I have children who have frequent colds, allergies, um, and ear infections, they often do have difficulties with acquiring language, with the clarity of their speech, and the attentiveness of their listening skills. So those right. are just some of the things, that, you know, off the top of my head that that we look for. Certainly when we're doing standardized tests, we look to see um, if there's, a, a, you know, discrepancy between their expressive language and their listening or auditory skills. But sometimes the auditory skills are low and, and the expressive language is also low because they're not really hearing and acquiring all those little nuances of, of speech, for example, you know, endings of words, tenses, um, you know, little changes uh, in 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 uh, word dynamics. So uh, sometimes the expressive language is is showing us what they hear. You know, so for kids who who hear things in sort of a garbled way, their expressive language and, and articulation can sound kind of garbled and unclear because that's how they perceive it. Right. Right. Let me ask you this, Patty, as someone who primarily works with that birth to three, birth to four range. When you're talking about a lot of these risk factors, I can put myself in Kate, see if this is what happened when you were when you were listening. Mm-hmm. I can totally see myself as looking at this and thinking a lot of what she's describing can also be a kid who's on the spectrum and hasn't been identified. But you're not talking about those kids. You're talking about children who aren't showing those other red flags uh, like stereotypic behaviors or self-stimulatory kinds of things. You're talking about children in the absence of those things who are displaying um, delays in how they understand language and certainly then the delays in how they talk, correct? Well, you know, it's interesting you bring it up because, you know, we've talked quite a lot about this, certainly in California when we put our document together and we have a little section on it, and I know uh, the ASHA folks have really labored over this particular issue because there are kids who are higher level on the spectrum who are very verbal and, and somewhat social who have a discrepancy with their auditory processing and auditory skills. And so the question for us as as professionals and and trying to delineate, you know, who do we call having this disorder or not, is is this. Is is auditory processing difficulty, as as you so nicely put, it's inherent in the makeup and the constellation of symptoms that we see in kids who are on the autism spectrum. So, exactly. you know, it, it's really part and parcel of the, enti- of the entire constellation. So it doesn't mean that they don't have difficulties with auditory processing. In fact, it's one but, of their primary difficulties is that exactly. they don't perceive and process speech. It doesn't, from a, from a professional point of view or a clinical point of view, we wouldn't necessarily diagnose that child with an auditory processing disorder because it is part of their of their overall profile. But it doesn't mean that we won't want to treat some of these issues as well because it's still it's still something that needs to be addressed within their, their intervention program, even if it doesn't clinically qualify as having a separate diagnosis at the age of seven right. or eight. Um, right. so, so 
you know, the kids who are more just generic, I call them my garden variety, my garden variety speech-delayed kids who who have difficulty with listening and processing, um, you know, ha- have other issues but don't have all of the other things that go along with autism spectrum. But I still say that all of them, you know, would need intervention and would need support in developing their their listening and attention and uh, processing of language. But the group that you're discussing, the autism spectrum kids, wouldn't necessarily qualify for a clinical diagnosis of APD. Although I do have a number of um, audiologists out here in California who do. (laughs) And it's always interesting because they come to my practice and go, oh, we were told he has autism spectrum, but he doesn't. He has... He has auditory processing disorder. We're so relieved, and and you know because. And on so, a what do you say to parents like that, Patty? Parents that because this is what happens, I think, with children who are still so young, who might listen to this and say, "Well, that's my whole kid's problem. It's just right. that he's not processing language," and they kind of want to hold on to something that's a little less has a less uh, stigma yeah. than maybe an autism yeah. spectrum diagnosis. And so I want to be sure that parents who are hearing this get that we're saying as uh, kids who are on the spectrum will have these issues, but it, this specific diagnosis doesn't preclude or take the place of that bigger global developmental issue known as autism. So I just kind of want to... Exactly. Uh, You know, auditory processing deficits are part of the autism spectrum profile. Right. So uh, we we will expect to see that. Uh, An audiologist generally really shouldn't be doing specific testing for APD for these kids unless there is... Uh, a huge discrepancy between their functioning uh, and, you know, their auditory skills. Uh, So um, in in my mind, I I try to look at each child as a whole and and not get too bogged down in the diagnosis and just think, okay, he's having difficulty understanding what we're saying. You know, label or no, this or that. Um, Sometimes we, we can't you know, get them to an audiologist in a timely way or, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why children aren't able to to be definitively diagnosed. So in the end, uh, you know, it comes back to us as speech pathologists anyway to treat. And so um, we certainly have enough tests and enough wherewithal to, to at least get at some of those underlying issues that could contribute to it. So that's kind of where we start. And with a preschooler, you know, we're going to be doing a lot of the similar stuff anyhow for for right. auditory processing kids versus if we wanted to contrast it with receptive language or, you know, um, you know language how would comprehension. You that, how would you address that? If someone said to you, how can I tease this, you know, APD kid, an auditory processing disorder kid versus a kid that it's just, a standard, or not standard, but a receptive language delay. And I tell parents and therapists, do not worry about that with this little kid. You're going to look at it as kind of the same big thing for a while because we have to make sure um, that the child is able to 
again, complete or, or get to those milestones that we're looking at when we're thinking about receptive language and not trying to differentiate and tease that out when they're as young as um, yeah. the clients are that we're working with. It, exactly. There, it, it's really kind of pointless, you know, in terms right. of trying to, to um, you know, come up with a label or figure out if it's this or that because, Look, the, the bottom line is when I get a three-year-old who comes in, if he, if he or she is having um, difficulty with their speech production and they come in and their speech is very unclear and it's garbled and indistinct, um, I'm going to want to make sure that they, they don't have fluid in their ears regardless. I'm going to want to make sure that there's nothing that's going on physically with them that's precluding that child from being able to hear well. So if they have enlarged tonsils, if they have ongoing allergies, if their nose is always running, if they're allergic to their dog at home or cigarette smoke, anything that's going to clog up those ears and make listening difficult is going to be something I'm going to want to uh, address. And then I'm going to be working at it from from a, a, a phonemic level. If I'm wanting to teach them how to attend to speech, I'm going to be getting, you know, I know you know this. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but engagement, yeah. engagement, engagement. You know, if they're not engaging with you and they're not playing and they're not interacting and they're not looking at you, nothing I do will matter. So I have to work at that very core level. It's almost, if you think of it like Pilates, you know, you have to get to that core level. And for a preschooler, the core level is engagement, play, interaction, um, and, and learning the basics of language, the basic, basic, basics of language. And that's best done in a really good acoustic environment where there's a lot of repetition and they can optimally hear uh, what's going on. You wouldn't want to do it on a soccer field or somewhere where there's a lot of distraction and background noise because we do want them to zoom in. But we're going to make sure that we accentuate and punctuate and really give (coughs) some acoustic emphasis. Excuse me. To those sounds, like to the ending sounds or to the beginning sounds or whatever it is we're trying to target, we want them to start discriminating between similar sounding words and getting feedback. And I know you, you do this so great on uh, with your kids, giving them feedback. This is what you're saying and this is what I'm hearing you say so that they can right. start getting that loop of, of self-correction and feedback. So um, recording them, listening to them, looking, anything that we can help them you know, see for themselves what they're saying, any visual support that we can give them, whether it's gestures, hand cues. You know, if we're going to make the snake sound, we're going to be like a big snake and, you know, let's make the snake sound and we're going to say all these snake sound words. You know, anything that we can do to draw attention to the acoustic elements of the sounds we're targeting and if we're doing plurals, same thing. Look, we hear the snake sound at the end of the word. You know, books. And really doing that that accentuation and using some visual supports and gestures and you know anything at all that we can bring attention to the parts of the the word um, or right. even to the physical part of pronouncing the word with their mouth, you know helping them to make that connection between what their mouth is doing and what the sounds are saying and those are things that are good just speech therapy practices all around you know it right. doesn't necessarily have to be specifically for speech, but, I mean, for uh, auditory processing, but 
certainly um, rhymes and music and singing, anything that helps uh, attenuate their ear to pitch and keeping them on task and sustaining their listening with fewer and fewer, fewer visual supports and fading them out and keeping them on. All those things are, are great for developing their listening skills. Books on tape, books on CDs where, you know, they have to close their eyes and listen to the Curious George story and, and follow it. Yeah, um, listening to storybooks um, where they're not just flipping pages by themselves and looking at, you know, factual information, but really listening to a story and processing it. So those are just a few of the things. Yeah, those are great ideas. If we backed it down further and looked at kids with that are coming to us, that let's say their engagement is not quite where we want it to be, but it's moving along, but we realize receptive language is their number one issue where they're not really following any directions yet. They're with you. They're trying to play, but they're not yet linking meanings to words. What what are some things that you guys recommend in your practice for that? And you know this is my soapbox issue with receptive language. (laughs) Right, right. Um, Well, you know, we have a number of different ways that we go about it. Um, We try to pick things out of their environments that are meaningful for them and actually just get them into the habit of of listening because um, sometimes, you know, we're thinking about things that we we want them to learn, but for for them, the things that might be meaningful are bottle, you know, baba or um, their favorite food or somebody in their family. And in the beginning, it's just going to be to get them to to make that association between these these objects or people and the word it represents. So we start all the way from there. We do use um, photographs. We have different activities that we do with with actual photographs where we we play and and, and when they touch, you know, the photograph that they they want, you know, the object appears. So they can start to see some of that symbol sound relationship and then we start fading that out and just saying it and having them look towards the thing that they want that they that they just heard so we'll you know we try to start making those associations for them with what the word is and what it means and listening for it um we we do uh try to personalize it we use a lot of um different devices for the little, little kids even, just so they can hear themselves and see. So we do some some uh, taping of their favorite object, too, um, with it, and we, we, we put it in different spots in their room, and they, they make, you know, even the slightest sound that sounds like it, we, we can show it and give them feedback, and they get it. So it's just at the at the beginning, it's really just making connections, making connections between right. what the word is and what the object is, and getting them in that whole loop of of the word representing the object. So that's our first goal, really. And sometimes they're they're not as cooperative, so we do have to use different types of reinforcers, different um, little gummy things or um, anything that will be a reinforcer for that child. We try to help them make those connections and start learning that words mean something. So that's really where we start. Exactly. Yeah, I think receptive language is really overlooked with 
uh, lots of fish biologists who specialize in, um, even in preschool age, that would be the level beyond Kate and me, where it's the three to five-year-old. And I'll, I got an email this week from a speech pathologist who's recently been on our program. Kate, it was from Sharika in Barbados, and she had a client of hers moved to Kentucky who had a language disorder, both receptive and expressive, and the speech pathologist here only wrote expressive goals on the IEP, and Mom was really far enough along in her understanding what's going on with her child, to be alarmed about that. And so she called her previous speech pathologist to say, what am I going to do about this? Because she's com they've completely overlooked that the reason that my child isn't talking as well is because she doesn't understand language. And so I hate when that's not a part, you know, receptive language goals, auditory processing, whatever you want to call it, when it's not a part of... Um, an overall treatment program. Right, because you can't really talk about something you don't understand yet, you know. I mean, there's no way to to pull out a word that's not even entered into the data bank yet. So the receptive right. part really has to, to start um, ahead of time. And, and actually, when I work with little kids, I'm not actively doing that now because I'm doing all assessments and other stuff, but up until two years ago, I, I was... And what I would tell the parents is, okay, this week we're working on inputting. We're going to input these concepts. So all week long we're going to be working on behind. So you're going to every, literally every hour or so, I'm behind the TV. I'm behind the TV. Oh, look, I'm behind the door. Now I'm behind, you know, I said just for one whole solid week, I just want you to input, 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 input. You know, and that way next week we're going to come in and we're going to do some receptive work to see if that, sunk in a little bit, and if it's sunk right. in, then I can jump in because we're working on B words and two-syllable B words. It's going to be a great word for me to to use, but I can't right. use it until we've had that properly inputted. And um, you can do it with toys and games and jumping out from places, and there's all kinds of fun ways to do it. I love receptive language because I think it's there's so much fun stuff to do with it. Um, I, I really too. love it. But, um, you know, you can't really pull something out uh, with uh, expressive language or even articulation if they don't have the basis for using it. So we've got to input it all first into the computer, then we can get it to print out. <laughs> that's a great analogy. And where you live, that's really important since you're right in that, in that whole uh, <laughs> Silicon Valley there with all those computers. That's right. That's, that's right. Well, I'm in, <laughs> yeah, I'm in Cupertino. We're literally um, down the street and around the block from Apple, and there's an Apple uh, campus or building about 15 feet from our office. That's, uh, I think it's just their marketing end or something, but there's a great big Apple sign when we turn in our driveway. So, yeah, I think we, we all do have a lot of tech, tech analogies out here. Sorry. <laughs> No, I think it's a great analogy, and I think it's one that I'm going to use now. And I talk well, about our word Kentucky, you need a horse analogy. You you can't use the, the tech analogy. You need a horse racing analogy. I don't know. We'll have to come up with that one. But I like the whole 
way to explain it like that to a parent that they have to really, and I talk about receptive language all day, every day, but that's just another analogy in another way. And any therapist who's listening might be able to really use that uh, as they're talking to parents so that they really understand and have parents really buy into that is we're not going to hear that word yet because your child has no idea what that concept even means. And so we've got to spend a long time working on that input piece before we could ever expect to realistically get it as output, you know, hear, hear the kids. So that's a great analogy. I, I love it. I'm going to use that from now on. <laughs> input. You're love working it, on it. input. 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 That was great. Okay. Well, and, and you, you know, the- I, I know years ago, I mean, uh, there was a, a, a piece of research that showed kids who have uh, word retrieval deficits typically need 20 uh, representations of the word heard in order to input it accurately versus a typically developing child who only needs six. So as I always tell parents, you know, you just kind of assume that they're going to just pick it up, you know, because they hear it in conversation or the way that other kids do. But we have to really, really consciously put it in there and and get those repetitions in there or else it won't stick. Yeah, I think that's great information, too, and to actually have a number like that to be able to tell parents, you know, that they have to hear that word three times at least three and a half times, but, you know, we're speech therapists who can't really do math with six into 20, but they really have to hear that three times as many times as a typically developing kid or a kid who's learning language according to kind of that normal progression before we can expect them to understand what that word means or to be able to link that together. Mm -hmm. So I, I love having that hard data there. You'll have to send me that reference after the show, Patty. I'd love to have that to be able to to add it. I think it's in your book. I think I remember seeing that um, in your book for parents. Why don't you talk about that a little bit, your childhood speech, language, and listening problems, what every parent should know. Okay. Well, you know, the the, uh, the way this book came about, I was, I was working in a school district in uh, Connecticut uh, at the time, and I would do all these really nice, uh, in-depth assessments for the kids that I worked with. And then we would have an IEP meeting, and I was, they would have a 30-minute IEP meeting, and the, the learning consultant, myself, the occupational therapist, and the teacher all had to present their findings in the space mm-hmm. of that 30 minutes. Wow. And you, as you can already tell from me, I chat, I talk, I talk, I talk. So for me to write a five-page report at that point and try to sum it up in five or eight minutes was painful. It was painful because wow. I had so much information about a particular child. And here I, you know, I could talk on the phone to the parent or go over it separately, which is what I ended up doing. But then um, a lot of it didn't get through to the team. or they, You know, it, it was really supposed to be a more cohesive intervention plan. And for some of our kids who have more in-depth issues, it, it I was very, you know, frustrated that I couldn't really impart what I knew about that child. So what I started to do was to write down little little um, pamphlets, really. I mean, it, it was so long ago. To give you an idea, it was before they really had the Internet. So I was typing on it. You know, an old, you know, Apple IIc, I think, and uh, typing this out. And I started collecting 
a chapter on morphology or a chapter on auditory memory, a chapter on word retrieval, and um, we we didn't have the ability to scan for for um, you know books online, so you have to go to the bookstore or to your library, and so um, I, I realized there was no book that I could really direct my my parents to, and my sister had a son who had speech difficulty, and she kept asking me questions constantly, and she'd get his assessments, and she didn't know what half of it meant, and so I started writing stuff for her, so um, I, I, you know, went about uh, seeing if I could get a publisher. This is back in 1994, no, 90, wait, no, 1992 was when I wrote it. And so um, I got, I did get a publishing deal with Don Wiley, which is a very big publisher in New York. And so the first edition, it was uh, published in 1995, and the second edition was in t- 2001, and the most current edition came out in 2010. And so each time, you know, I've been able to add content, or um, now I've been able to add content. In the beginning, they only allow, allotted me a certain number of pages. So I wasn't allowed wow. to go over that page number. So I, people would kept saying, you should talk more about this or more about that. But I had only a certain number of pages I could work within. So over the years now, it's uh, it's published in um, Spanish and also in Chinese. So uh, it's it, you know kind of around the world. But it's it's been helpful because a lot of times for parents of children that we work with or that I see, they come into our office and they'll say. You know, I, I I looked at chapter four and it sounds just like my daughter, you know, or chapter yeah. eight or whatever it is. And so they have a little bit of a heads up on the terminology and the, the, what kinds of things we're going to be looking at and why we're going to be looking at them. Um, so I think as a parent, and I, I have two kids of my own, both of them have special needs. So I've had to become... Uh, more educated about things I never thought I'd be educated about. But, you yeah, know, knowledge too. is power. So I think it's it's hard to advocate for your child if you don't have access to the information that you need to even know what they need. And, and that's half the battle is even understanding the nature of their issues and why they say what they do or why they don't do, you know, what you want them to or why they forget. So the, the book was written really just to give parents some some information about their children. I think it's a great book for parents, too, with children who are not just late talkers, but children who are going to need uh, speech therapy services for a while. And I think it does a really good job of talking about the first kinds of things we'll see in toddlers and young preschoolers and then moving with that child as he or she ages and gets to be school-aged, and so that's what I really liked it. And the parents that have given me feedback have said, you know, I really am going to, I can see how I'm going to need this book for a long time, you know, because (laughs) it isn't just about a particular, you know, one little blip of that child's um, development. You know, it really can go go with them. So I think it's a great, great, great resource. And I would say that even if you weren't here before. Yeah, on the show, so there you go. I do say it. <laughs> well, you're very nice. You do say it. You say it in the conferences. Uh, and let's move on, though, because we only have about 15 more minutes. I want to talk about apps. 
And this is your new venture, Patty, with using apps. I think I talked to you a little bit about this with our email. I am not a huge proponent of apps with toddlers with significant communication issues because I think we have so little time with them as therapists that we need to do everything we can to get that first piece that you already talked about with engagement and social interaction and play. And if so many of our little guys who are naturally drawn to technology often are missing those foundational skills. So as a therapist, I think uh, for us in early intervention that we should be really focused on that one-to-one personal human component of communication and save the app stuff as they get older or if we're going to use it as maybe one of their motivators or one of their rewards or doing something else that might be a skill that we're working on. Now, if you want to disagree with me here on my own show, go right ahead. No, you know, well, I think we talked about this at ASH a little bit, and I and my staff, you know, was, was there, and I think right. they kind of, you know, talked to you about it. But, you know, a lot of people, I think, think because we we create apps that we sit there and, and use them all day with the kids at our office, and the, and the truth is, um, we don't uh, for for exactly the reason that you're that you're talking about. I would say for for and I, I have to tell you, I would I would go a little further than what you're saying. I would go a little further with all kids and all kids that come into our therapy practice, even the elementary age and middle school age kids, whenever a parent comes in and says to me, well, he's not very good at listening, but he sits at the at the computer for, you know, six hours every day and he can do, and they'll rattle off a list of very sophisticated, you know, games that the child plays online, you know, relentlessly. Right. And and the parent will, will be very, very excited that he knows all his letters, he knows all his numbers, he can do this academic skill and that academic skill because he's so into the computer and, and they're very happy about it. And and then when I try to engage them on something, let's say like the PLS, just a base story and you show me who I'm talking about, the child's literally getting up and walking away. And right. um, they'll say, well, if, if you could just if you could ask them that on the computer, you, you know, you do apps. Why don't you? Why don't you have them do that on an app? And I would say, well, you're missing the point. You know, uh, I get that. You know, he's very good on the computer and very good. And if you hand them, an, you know, an iPad, he'll sit there for an hour and a half and do, you know, Hangman. But if he won't look at me and talk to me and you know interact with me, what good is it? You know, because right. You know, the the test that I'm doing is finding out if he will answer a question. I'm saying to him, you know, would you like a snack? And he doesn't have a yes-no response yet. You know, and, and when I'm asking him, he's either grabbing it out of my hand or he's throwing it or he's screaming or he's whatever. And right. that that yes-no response is so critical and and sometimes the parent will say, well, you can tell he doesn't want it. He's screaming. Why does he have to tell you no? And I'll say, well, because, because I, you know, talk. we yeah. need to have yes or no. You know, that's, that, that's a really basic thing. Or, 
um, you know, which one do you want, even making choices, things like that. So when I have a situation where a, a child's really fixated on computers and iPads, the last thing I would do is take a, an iPad or a computer out during a session because it, that that transition is very, very difficult. Even if you bring it in the end of the session, sometimes you can't even get them out the door, you know, and they're right. they're very um, difficult to, to make that transition. So for the kids who are really passionate about computers and iPads, those are exactly the ones I don't want using them. Um, exactly. They're the ones, they're the ones I really Yeah, they're the ones I really want to keep engaged and work on that person-to-person contact. I think the more ideal kids for for an app or or something like that is somebody who needs, let's say, a lot of input, you know, when we're talking about the input, input, input. So if I'm trying to work on, let's say, behind, you know, or, or something like that, and the parent is in a doctor's office and they're trying to find a way to keep a kid busy while their other child's in there for a half an hour and, you know, they're, they've run out of books and they've run out of everything. And, you know, they're, you know, I think that's a great time to pull out an app and go, okay, here, you know, rather than you, like, having a meltdown, here, we can, you know, do this. Or if I'm on an airplane or if I'm, you know, strapped in a car seat in a car for four hours or, you know, something like that, I think that there's times where, you know, if you have a little dead time and you're trying to entertain your child and you don't have, you know, a, a book handy or this, whatever, I think that it's it's a fun way to kind of input some mm-hmm. of those concepts and practice it. But it, it should be, to me, it's kind of like uh, the best way I could describe it. It's like a lollipop. It's a, it's a, it's a fun thing to have here and there, now and then, Um but if I have a sugar addiction, I'm not going to take it out. <laughs> you know, I'm going to I'm going to use it sparingly, and uh, maybe for a reward, or maybe to keep me, you know, pacified for a little while, so that it's, um, you know, serving some valuable time or useful time. But I certainly wouldn't be using it, honestly, for any age, for a, a good portion of time. The only time I would say, like, there's a couple apps that we have for older elementary kids that have video clips on them that's very hard to reproduce in a therapy session because they show kids interacting and, you know, you have to decipher their intentions. And sometimes there's elements of apps that provide something that is hard to reproduce. Or our first phrases app, you know, the kids touch the different pictures and then an animation occurs and sort of demonstrates the, the action. Sometimes for some kids that's more fun than watching me do it. You know, if I'm if I'm uh, making a cake, I, I'm not as 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 exciting as the uh, the animation on there. But I I would do it pretty sparingly. I mean, I always tell parents I I consider an iPad or computer to be sort of in the category with a TV. You know, and for we know that uh, the pediatricians say no TV under the age of two. And certainly over the age of two, we're going to be very judicious with it, with the content, with the amount of time, how it's done. And most times you want it to be an interactive uh, activity when you're watching and not just sitting your kid in front of it and walking away. Although sometimes when you know, when you have a... When you have a flu or you don't feel good or the child, there's occasions where all of us, I'm sure, sure. you know, you know, 
on certain days or moments, you know, when you're having a crisis, you know, we all do it. But, you know, on a day-in, day-out basis, we don't want to do that with a TV, and you don't want to do that with an iPad. You don't. You want to sit there with a child and do it in an interactive way if you're going to do it, and not just hand it to the child and say, here you go, have fun playing with it. It should be an interactive, kind of thought-provoking process where you're engaged and you take turns. You know, you do it the wrong way, and he has to correct you, and you initiate, and you know, you want to try to get some mileage out of the activity. Right. So tell us what tell us your favorite apps for therapists. And we on our show have therapists that work with younger kids, but we have some people that follow us who are preschool speech language pathologists, and we certainly have parents that have hung around with us for a long time who because we've been doing the show now for four and a half years who might have four-, five-, and six-year-olds. So tell us your favorite apps and how a parent could use. um, You've given us some ideas with diversions and stuff, but specifically, you know, this app is great for receptive language. This app is great for following directions. This app is great for expressive language, that kind of stuff. Do your advertisement now, Patty. Okay. (laughs) So I I would say, like, of of the ones that we do um, are, are by far our biggest seller is uh, Fun With Directions. That's by far. That outsells everything that we do because it it transcends speech and language development, and it's just a fun app. And sometimes when we're sitting at lunch, one of my therapists will get bored and will literally sit there and play with it because it is fun. It's called Fine With Directions, and it is It, it was is fun. fun, and that's the one it I did your to make. And it, 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 was it fun. is fun. Yeah, yeah it, it yeah. is. So, And that one we're actually um, – updating uh and will it will it will have a progress tracker on it that was something that everybody really um clamored for i am not a huge fan of progress trackers because i want it to be interactive and i've right. from the beginning have said why do you need a progress tracker you're going to be sitting there with a child and you're you going know. to know how we and you're going to be cueing them and you're going to be doing it with them. So, you know, the 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 score on it is kind of irrelevant because it's supposed to be done as an interactive fun activity, hence fun with directions. Um right. and a lot of people have been you know, I, I can't even tell you, they're just flipping out because we don't have data tracking on it. And you know, my feeling is if you're there, won't you know if he's getting it or not? Aren't you gonna have some right. sense of you know He's getting it, and you're going to be cueing them, so it shouldn't be pure data anyway. You know, if you're, you're right. the idea isn't to test the child. You know, you do your baseline testing when you test them, and then you're doing your intervention. You're supposed to be cueing them and showing yeah. them. So, you you know, I, that's just a personal thing with me. I don't, whenever anybody tells me that, that, that all they want to do is collect data during a session, then what do you do? doing you're supposed to be doing intervention and teaching them something so otherwise you're just testing them the whole time right so we're adding it but i'm doing i'm telling you i'm doing it under duress and and uh wow. there's a way to turn it off in the settings and i hope people turn it off because i i don't love data tracking on anything but fun with directions and more fun is really good for ages three to six and more fun with directions is four to seven um, and then first phrases uh, for, for 
for kids who are trying to put two and three words together is for ages uh, three or so, three or four, if they're speech delayed. That's a real fun one. I would say those three are my, my favorites for the, the little kids. We have one called First Words International, which is really for um, receptive and expressive vocab. But, um, you know, I think I mentioned to you, we generally use it more as a screening tool. I wouldn't I wouldn't be too excited to use it for a child who's trying to acquire names of things. Um, I, I think it, its best use is for children who are bilingual and maybe already are verbal, and they're coming in and they speak Chinese really well, and the mom right. maybe doesn't even know the words in English well and is trying to get the child to learn the English words. This way the child has some ability to play it in either language and they can make the association like, oh, here it is in Chinese, I know that. Here it is in English, I know that. Vocabulary to me really needs to be generally taught in, in person. So um, the first words international is for the little kids, for 18 months uh, to two. But it's not the way that I would be generally teaching vocabulary more so than I would be you know, reinforcing it, or if for children who are on the autism spectrum who don't generalize it well, there's a number of different uh, representations of the same object so they can generalize it. But um, I think for that age, uh, you, you know, I wouldn't be using that one to, to teach it so much as just to get a, a receptive, expressive screening sense for it. Right. And that's a great way to think about using that. I had not thought about using an app in that way. So that, that's that's great for that. All right, in our last four minutes, I did not know this, but you were working on an assessment with your colleagues. So why don't you tell us about that? Because this will be news to me. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, this it's funny. This uh, assessment, Dr. Uh, Deb Swain and I uh, have known each other for many, many years, and we presented. She was on the uh, CAPD task force with me, and we've been on a couple boards and commissions together, and we presented on auditory processing disorders quite a bit over the years, and uh, I wrote some chapters in her auditory processing book that just came out in its second uh, edition. So, you know, every, we have lunch, and we would sit there, and, and she's she's written a number of tests. I don't know if you know, but she does the, the auditory processing abilities test. She did the RIPA Ross Information Processing Assessment. Um, there's a number of assessments that she's authored over her career. Um, she's been right. a pretty prolific uh, test person. So whenever I would eat with her, I'd say, "Deb, Deb, you've got to do, you've got to help me out here. I need a, I need a better test for my elementary kids. I, I'm just right. personally not a huge fan of the self. I don't love the self. Right. I, you know, a lot of the information to me is very arbitrary and kind of discrete tasks that are not real relevant to what I'm working on. And so every year I'm trying to show progress with these kids, and none of the standardized tests really measure what it is I'm actually working on. So, um, and, and, you know, some of these uh, IEPs, they have, they have goals that are directed towards improving their test scores and not really functional tasks. Right. Have, for example, you know, here's four words. Tell me which two go together and why. I don't recall ever being asked that in my life, you know, or, or you know, unscramble the exactly. sentence, you know, and put the sentence together back together. I don't. Nobody ever asked. Nobody ever hands me a, a mixed up sentence, you know. It's not something I'm asked right. to do. 
So I wanted to have a test that really was more functional and relevant to the skills that I really was going to be working on with my elementary kids. And she kept saying, oh, I'm busy. Da, 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 da. Why don't you do it? And I said, no, I'm busy. I'm doing this. I'm doing... So finally one day we were sitting, and uh, and she said, you know what? I have time. Do you want to do it? And so that was five years ago. So we did field testing all over the United States in different uh socioeconomic areas and geographic areas, and uh, we're really excited about it. And if uh, if all goes well, we will have it uh, released by the end of next year with a, a publisher out here in California. So we're we're pretty happy. Well, I know you're excited about that, and I know all about long-term projects and projects <laughs> that you work on with your friend, Kate Gensler. <laughs> that you've talked about forever and ever and ever and it just takes a while to kind of get off the ground. Kate and I have a couple of those little topics that we visit and think, when are we going to have the time to do this? So I totally get that. But how exciting for you. And Thank I know you. that um, that that's great. That's such a great professional achievement. I know that therapists all over are going to benefit from you bugging to have in your lunches together. Um and, and that you'll finally have your finished product with that. So congratulations Thank you. for that. And, and then we will and be doing is, a preschool version after that, too. That It'll take a few more years. Maybe one day yeah. I'll get to use that. Yeah, because yeah. elementary to me, you know, that's like geriatrics. I know everybody says that <laughs> joke. It's the truth. When you, when you think three-year-olds are big and grown, you know, I can't even imagine an elementary-aged kid coming in my place to work with, so. Well, you'll I'll to, call and bug you and Kate, and you you guys can give me some some wish list information when I get to that point. There you go. We'll have it for you. It <laughs> is the end of the hour. Always flies by. I mean, every week I think this is the fastest show ever, and it certainly <laughs> has felt like that today because I think I could talk to you forever about these topics. Thank you so much, Patty, for being on with us and for sharing great, great, great information. And I hope we can have you back in the future. Hey, you're so welcome anytime. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank, Thank you. you so much. All right, you <laughs> take care. Get better soon. All right, bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> bye-bye. I'll put Patty's, uh, a link to Patty's book or in her information about her app on teachmetotalk.com's Facebook page so that anyone listening can um, access that information. Isn't she wonderful, Kay? I knew you would like her. Very wonderful. Yeah. So down to earth, so honest. I mean, her whole um, explanation of how to use apps, you know, you wouldn't necessarily expect that from somebody who's made some apps, but um, certainly was music to my ears and, and, you know, makes me think, well, she really does which is no surprise, but, you know, she seems to put emphasis where it should be. And, and and like she said, there are certainly appropriate uses for apps, and as kids get older, I can see why people are moving in that direction for some things, but with um, moderation and balance are are key there. Yeah, and she sees all ages of kids. I think she said that, but I know that they do early intervention since they use and recommend all my stuff, and that's all that it's for. And then her um, elementary age kids as well. I think her practice, they specialize in close to 12. That's what I think I read on her website. But if you are in California and need a fantastic practice to go to, 
I think that's where I would go if I lived there. And Ma, I remember um, so, way back when, when, when she first purchased your DVDs and you were like, oh, I've read her books. And you were so excited. I know. I know. Is that really? I know. I try not to be too starstruck today. Yeah. She was very sweet. And you're right. So down to earth and so real life therapist. You can tell she really sees kids. You know, sometimes you'll talk to a person and you'll think, how long has it been since you treated a kid? Hmm. But you don't get that sense of Patty. And that's what I like about her so much. So I'm so glad she agreed to do the show. And I think it was great. And I hope everyone listening benefited. But even if nobody did except me, that's okay because I got a wealth of information from today. So I think she was super. Loved it. Yeah. All right. Any parting words from you? Uh, no, I don't really think so. Just keep them All coming. Right. I love the guests. Not that I contributed anything, but I was a good listener. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Next week we have a mom calling in. We she's already uh we've already emailed back and forth and she has a ton of questions so next week will be a really really fun show with uh, that mom and she has listened to nearly all of our podcasts in a really short amount of time and so kate and i are always kind of blown away by that and so she'll be a really fun caller and so um, that's what's on for next week is hearing the mom's questions and she has a little guy that has a lot of stuff going on, uh, has some real cognitive and visual strengths, but she's just wondering how can I ever teach him how to play. So that's what we'll be talking about next week. And if you were a fan or listened to or really liked our Stages of Play series that we did, gosh, a year and a half ago or so, and I, I still get tons of email about that podcast series, we are going to be talking about that link on next week's show. So be sure to catch us then. And we'll uh, stick right back to that. All right, Kate, that's it for today. Sounds good. Thanks, Laura. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.